Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Try to summarize all this, and of course, the summary is well wrapped around 66 pages from James Diamond. Right now, Jim Bianco joins us with Bianco Research in Chicago with a wonderful overview on the market. Jim, I assume you haven't read the 66 pages of uh, of uh, Mr. Diamond. It's wide ranging, as you would imagine. Let's look right now at one of the quotes from Jamie Diamond. Let's zoom in on a quote on Zoom. Jim Bianco's lived with Zoom. Lisa Bramlitz has lived with Zoom. I am Zoom free. I'm pl- really pleased uh, to say that. But let's look at Jamie Diamond on Zoom. Most professionals learn their job through an apprenticeship model, which is almost impossible to replicate in the Zoom world. Over time, this drawback could dramatically undermine character and culture. Remote work virtually eliminates spontaneous learning and creativity because you don't run into Jim Bianco at the coffee machine. I mean, there it is, old school uh, uh, Jim Bianco. Do you think we return to our offices of old? Uh, Sort of. Uh, I'm going to push back on that quote a little bit. I'm going to say, yes, um, it is, you know, human interaction, human contact is important, but not, I don't think, in the form that Jamie Dimon is suggesting that, you know, 10 hours a day in an office, sitting in a little room by yourself, working at a computer in a service sector job. I think that we're going to have to rethink what the office is and rethink why we go to the office. We've just shown as an economy over the last year, we can produce the economy just fine, all working remotely. And I agree we need more human contact. Look, I want nothing more than to go to a Wrigley Field game again. But I also recognize that maybe I don't need to go to one of those gigantic buildings in the center of a major city and spend 45, 50 hours a week there as well, too. There's going to have to be a rethink as to what exactly does the office mean. And it sounds like some people are not there yet as far as uh, having that conversation. What is the Bianco creative destruction then, and how do you prosper from it? What is your investment strategy, given what this pandemic has wrought and in the boom economy recovery? I think the biggest thing with the boom economy has been all of the stimulus, uh, you know, the mailing of checks that we've had. We've got the savings rate at a 60-year high. We've got everybody itching to get out. That's what everybody says right now, and I think it's very, very true. And when they do, I think we're going to start to see spending go. That's what everybody says. And then we'll have to have a real conversation about inflation. It's too early to have that conversation about inflation. The base effect of dropping off March and April of last year and seeing the year-over-year numbers go up a lot is literally going to start next week. And the checks that we just recently mailed out have only been a couple of weeks old. So I think as we move forward, we're going to have a conversation about inflation and whether or not we see it. If we see it, it's going to have to accelerate the Fed. If we don't see inflation, it's going to open the conversation to modern monetary theory and more money being spent at a higher rate than we're already doing it right now. What's the nature of the pickup in inflation that you're looking for? And this is important because we've seen inflation of certain key goods, but what is the important increase in inflation that you need to see to say, this is a sign of something different? 
I think it's probably going to be that companies are going to raise their prices. Look, we've known now for the last 25 years, if you're a manager of a real company, not a Wall Street company, let's define those two, uh, and you raise your price, you raise your price for washing machines or you raise your price for sweaters, you're on the second page of a Google search on lowest to highest price, you don't sell anything, you lose market share. Everybody's been droned into don't ever raise your price because of that uh, consequence. If we get to the point where there's a demand pull that so many people are wanting stuff, that we start seeing prices start to be raised, then in Fed speak, we've unanchored inflation. And we could then start to talk about whether or not it is actually here for the first time in a quarter century. I think that's a real possibility as we move forward that we could see that unanchoring of inflation. So we're seeing 10-year yields today go down. Uh, they are well down their uh, recent highs, which raises a question of whether they are underpricing this reality that you're talking about. Where could 10-year Treasury yields conceivably go if you see those uh, inflationary pressures that you're talking about? Well, I think they could go higher. Now, I'm not surprised that they're falling right now because they've had a relentless rise for the last several months and have been, you know, oversold in terms of prices and that we're seeing a correction in there. But I also would argue that when interest rates go up, it's neither bullish or bearish for the stock market. It depends on why. If they're going up because the narrative right now is we're reopening, we're going to have massive real growth, we're going to have more earnings, that's fine. Interest rates could go up and it won't bother the economy or the financial or the stock market, if you will. But if interest rates are going up because of inflation, and that's a loss of purchasing power, your dollar buys less in a year than it buys now, that's a problem for the economy and for the stock market. And we're going to continue to have that debate. In the meantime, I think rates are going to go higher like they have over the next several months, like they, uh, like they have over the previous several oh. months. And we're going to continue to have this debate, whether it's reflation or real growth or inflation. I mean, I hate to say it to James Dimon, uh, Jim Bianco, but the read of the morning is Brian Chapata at Bloomberg, not Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan, where Chapata tears apart the idea of wages aren't going up. Are you seeing wage inflation in Chicago? And to the point, is that really what's going to happen here, a surprise into the end of the year, a finally wage inflation gets back to 3-ish percent? Yeah, I, you know, it's hard to say whether or not you're seeing it right now, but that's going to be the question as to whether or not you do see wage inflation as we move forward. If you do, then you might see a, a bigger, robust job market because a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines. They don't need to go back to work. They are being, they've been given stimulus checks. They've been given an extra kicker in unemployment insurance. So they're sitting around waiting until all of that runs out. If we do see wage inflation, I think then, like I said, it would, it would fast forward everything like the Fed and the thinking in the market. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now, it's too early to say that we've seen it. Uh, right. But I think that's going to be the second half of the year question. <clears throat> Jim Bianco, thanks so much. Go Cubs. Bianco Research in Chicago. <laughs> planned on doing this and we didn't understand that it would be a 66-page letter by Mr. Diamond, certainly a tour de force, but you need the right guest at the right time, and that can always be Robert Albertson on banking with Piper Sandler, his leadership at Goldman Sachs decades ago in bank research out of Carnegie Mellon and Harvard. We're honored that Robert Albertson could join us this morning. Robert Albertson, you and I used to look at MDNA, and it was a good way to fall asleep. Where did we go from Robert Willens of M&T Bank to a 66-page missive from James Diamond? How did we get to these long letters? I think it's uh, 
it's a personality, partly. Uh, he is a very analytical person, and yet he has a way with words. And he recognizes analysis for its limits and the possibility of analysis paralysis, if I would suggest it. But he is attuned to so many different things and has pretty reasonable comments about all of them. Within the comments you mentioned to us before this conversation, you were zeroing in on his view back to the 1970s. Why is now, for James Diamond, like the 1970s? Well, he's, it's sort of unlike the 1970s. He's basically saying we had a recovery out of the 70s uh, recessions uh, without quantitative easing. And uh, we've had quantitative easing this time around, and it hasn't done much. So I think he's pointed to the uh, awash with liquidity mistake in terms of monetary policy. There also is a question here of what his political ambitions are, given the tone of this letter. He is talking about dysfunction. He said Americans know that something has gone terribly wrong and they blame this country's leadership, the elite, the powerful, the decision makers. This is completely appropriate for who else to blame. A lot of people have looked to the financial sector. Is this just a defense of the banking industry or is this something more, an engagement that goes beyond just from the C-suite into government? I think you have two ways to look at it. First of all, uh, I would not be surprised to see him turn up somewhere in government uh, in, a, in a high role, and I think he would be excellent at it. The second point is he is from banking, which has been the most criticized sector I can think of. And, and we have just gone through the most shocking recession uh, in memory, and the banking industry has shown no credit problems. Uh, it, is, it is remarkable uh, that the underwriting of this business has gotten to where it is and the risk control. So he's proven something in a very tough area. I think he'd like to prove it in a more public policy way. He also talked about his fortress balance sheet, to your point, about how it emerged very much as a stalwart during this pandemic. There's a question also of what's next, and he made a big point about fintech, how that is the big competitor going forward. And he actually talked about potential acquisitions in that space. What kind of tie-up could you see with J.P. Morgan? What kind of fintech company? Well, frankly, it's a little hard to come up with that because they have their own budget and their own fintech uh, uh, operation, which, which is pretty powerful. Um, they're also a complex organization, and a lot of what's out, what's out there with fintech isn't really appropriate for a J.P. Morgan. Having said that, uh, I, I think he's very focused on what it can do in retail banking, number one, uh, and I think that's kind of obvious to all of us, but also number two in terms of what, what, what can be done with artificial intelligence. Mr. Diamond making clear he's not a fan of Zoom meetings, as Robert Albertson is not a fan of Zoom uh, meetings. Robert Albertson, let's go there right now as Mr. Diamond talks about fortitude. This is a scathing statement, folks, on leadership. It goes on for two pages. Fortitude. This attribute often is missing in leaders. They need to have a fierce resolve to act. It means driving change, fighting bureaucracy and politics, and taking ownership and responsibility. Mr. Diamond goes on to say, ability to face facts in a cold-blooded, honest way. Leaders emphasize the negatives at management meetings and focus on what can be approved. That, Robert Albertson, sounds like best practices for every leadership out there right now. How do you move forward with that negative statement? How do you go into a bank management meeting uh, with negative analysis to come to a positive outcome? It's a good question, Dom. I think, uh, I think the real answer is embedded in, in what he's done and what he's achieved and, and why he's achieved it. And uh, if you look at uh, the importance of analysis and, and facts in almost any industry, they are critically important. We all know that. They seem to be absolutely uh, 
devoid in, in the political uh, sector, uh, taking positions, uh, making arguments that are financially wrong. Uh, you, you almost need a, uh, a cop out there to right. control what the politicians are allowed to say. Robert Elbertson, a two-part question. How does banking respond to James Diamond? How does American banking respond to this juggernaut? And very importantly, how does European banking respond to James Diamond? I'm not sure the European banking system will ever respond to the American banking system's successes. They seem to be mired in their own history and legacy, and they don't seem to be able to get out of it. But having said that, in terms of the U.S. banking system, I think most people look up to him. Uh, they know they're not him in terms of their uh, vehicle, uh, but they recognize what he says is critical. And, and if you if you want to talk about being a good corporate citizen, all you have to do is go into some small community bank and see what they're really doing in that market uh, that is community-oriented to recognize they're, they're pretty much singing the same songs he is in terms of uh, giving back. There's a question of whether banks are going to take more risk right now, given their fortress balance sheets and given the robust economic outlook, or whether they'll pare it back to avoid uh, getting ahead of the economic cycle. And this really seems to be a tension beneath Jamie Dimon's letter as well, because he talks about the dynamism of the economy, the economic boom possibly lasting till the end of 2023 with all the spending and QE, but also uh, talking about pockets of froth that he didn't specify. Can you talk about how banks are handling this? How high is the pressure to push further into risk to get returns at a time of economic dynamism? Not as high as you would think. They are very proud of coming out of what we went through uh, in one piece, and I don't think they wanted to spoil that. I don't think underwriting standards are going to change. They are starved for loan growth. The key here is uh, if we have an infrastructure package, that plus the last bill, uh, we, have enough, we have enough trillions in the economy to drive a huge capital uh, expenditure cycle, investment cycle. Everything so far has been on the consumer side uh, and the stimulus that's been aimed at that. Now we're shifting it to the commercial side. That has great power. That could really make 2023 uh, even better year than 2022. Most people don't look, look that far and, and see that yet. But if we get this infrastructure package, uh, it's, it's, right, it's right up Jamie's alley of fiscal spending. It could, really, it could really knock the cover off the ball. It could drive our economy into the eight or 9% range. It could drive rates up for sure, and inflation, all understood and accepted. Can you talk about where rates would have to go to make this as lucrative as you expect for banks? Because this is something Jamie Dimon's been very clear about. He sees benchmark 10-year Treasury yields going a lot higher. He's been wrong year after year. What's your view in terms of how high they have to go to make this equation make sense? Well, I'm wrong with him and have been wrong for years. Uh, the history of the uh, long-term interest rate cycle is that it averages about what nominal GDP growth is. And uh, if we got 6 or 7% GDP growth and 2 or 3% inflation, uh, you come up with a crazy number for the 10-year. I would argue that it's going to get to at least the 3% level uh, in fairly short order. The banks really care more about what happens to the short end of the spectrum. They need the Fed funds rate to get uh, moving uh, and, and not stay at, uh, at uh, zero. And, and I think that's actually going to occur this year, not next year. A lot of people think it won't happen. No. And, and I don't blame them because that's what the chairman of the Fed keeps saying. Robert Albertson, thank you so much. Good health to you with Piper Sandler, of course, on this day of Mr. Diamond's letter. Wonderful to get decades of perspective from uh, Mr. Albertson. <laughs> 
right now we reset. We can do that with Kristen Bitterly of Citigroup Private Bank, someone who has to explain to people where to find the courage. Kristen, thank you so much for joining. I really want to go right away to a wonderful phrase you have, which is the duh, that cash is punitive. And yet I know cash is punitive. I don't want to be in it, but I'm afraid to, to go. How do you move from this wall of cash and the fear of missing out to get into the market? What's the first step? It's so hard. So I think the first step is actually looking at the data. The reason that we have this association that cash is safe and, and cash is where I go when I don't know what to do kind of predates the global financial crisis, right? So if you look at pre-global financial crisis, if you were sitting in cash on a post-inflationary basis, you were earning about 3% per annum. Not knocking it out of the park, but that's all right. Post-global financial crisis, you're basically losing 1.2% per annum. And that's where we're at right now. So holding on to cash is basically guaranteed to lose value over the next 12 months. So do you assume assume on a real yield analysis that other asset classes are inflated? I mean, do you carry it right over to say not so much the, you know, I don't want to be inflammatory. There's an equity bubble, but elements of the equity market are bubblicious because I can't get a, a real yield in punitive cash? I think there's so I think if you look at the overall levels of equity markets, it doesn't really tell the full story. So when we're talking about the level of the S&P 500 being north of 4,000, which seems pretty incredible given the year that we've had, it doesn't tell you what's going on beneath the surface. And this is pretty intuitive, but one of the indices that we track at Citi is called pure value. So it's one of our indices that what it does in a very simple sense is it takes the stocks that are in the S&P 500 and it basically ranks them according to their exposure to value as a factor. It's long the top 50% of those stocks, short the bottom 50 so it's a, it's a basic outperformance in terms of value. And so what we saw in March was that was the, the strongest performance. It was north of 6% that we've seen since second quarter of 2009. So that to me is when you're looking at what's going on under the surface is very different in terms of opportunities to put capital to work and delineating between those winners and losers in this environment. So Kristen, you're not just saying that cash is more punitive than GameStop shares. You're saying that people (laughs) need to uh, be investing in equities on an active level. This is everybody coming on and saying this is the year of active investment. Okay, great. But when you talk about allocations, what are you recommending? So there's a a couple of things that I think we need to keep in mind. This battle between, as I was just saying, value and growth, there's two trends that are driving the market right now. One is the mean reversion, right? So this is that catch-up trade, that idea that you had COVID defensives, COVID cyclicals, and basically the COVID cyclicals are catching up because of this reopening of the economy. The question there, which is why earnings are super important, is how much further can they go? So looking at some of these sectors in value in these COVID cyclicals that have had tremendous performance, how much higher can they go? So an area that we like there is actually global healthcare. So global healthcare is one of those sectors and it's ironic, right? It's underperformed the past 12 months. From a PE standpoint, it's basically at its lowest levels on a relative basis to global equities in over 10 years. It has an attractive dividend yield. So that's an area that we like. Um, But I think what's going to happen going into earnings is people are really going to pay attention to fundamental factors. They're going to pay attention to has inflation actually creeped into any of these earnings. So I think we could get some surprises, which would create some buying opportunities over the next couple of weeks. 
So in other words, you're saying wait for the pullbacks and there could potentially be some uh, opportunities to get uh, some potential returns that are bigger. I'm wondering on credit. We're looking right now at credit spreads that are the tightest they've been since 2007, <clears throat> certainly in the high yield space. And when you start to talk about punitive cash, do you start to talk about people taking perhaps more risk than they're getting bang for their buck? Are you recommending that people follow this trade or pull back and go perhaps either into equities or into treasuries and nothing in between? And so, yeah, so that that 300 basis point spread, right? Kind of going through that was something that that is is pretty symbolic and, and significant. I think a lot of people are looking at this in terms of comparing it overall high yield to equities and saying, well, if we're looking at it on a relative basis, there could be an additional 50 mm -hmm. basis points or 100 basis points. We're not quite there yet. We're definitely delineating in terms of the, the sector analysis within high yield. But another area, just go, talking about equities again, so UK equities is another area that's been largely ignored. We're looking outside the US in terms of trying to create right. some of this yield where you can get three and a half percent there. And again, valuations look very right. attractive. Krista, not that you and Lisa would know this, but long ago and far away, you bought Dominion of Richmond, Virginia. You bought it, you held it, you never sold it. And it's been a solid 30, 20, 10 year high single digit return. I just regressed Dominion Energy of, of, of Richmond, 17,000 employees, big 3% dividend yield, not with much dividend growth. And it's below the 30 year regression trend line. Are utilities of value here for those scared stiff? I, I think there, there's a place for it, but I, I honestly think within dividends and, and looking at dividends, this is not about just searching out for high dividend paying companies, because what you want to do is look through to the underlying balance sheet and make sure that they have a strong balance sheet. So when we build global dividend portfolios, what we're looking at is not just historical dividends, but also the ability to continue paying those dividends and grow those dividends going forward, which really gets into more of a credit and free cash flow analysis mm -hmm. than anything else. And you get some pretty broad oh, diversification. Yeah. Part of that's energy and utilities, but you actually yeah. get financials, healthcare, even technology. I feel so ancient, Lisa. I was trying to go Graham, Dodd, and Coddle, and Kristen just crushed me with the modern free cash flow analysis. I was just totally crushed there, Lisa. Well, hopefully uh, you can recover in the next few minutes, and hopefully we can drag you out of the hole. I will say, Kristen, we got to end the conversation, perhaps crushing Tom even more and talking about taxes. Uh, you know that you deal with a lot of wealthy individuals, and right now we're looking at potential policy changes in the U.S. that increase taxes on the wealthiest, particularly in New York State, but beyond on a federal level. How is this affecting the investment strategies of the people who you work with? You know what's interesting? It's not priced into the market at all. So another thing, and this goes back several years ago when we had the tax reform, we started monitoring basically kind of the tax winners and tax losers in terms of the tax reform. And so looking at the reversion of that trade in terms of increasing the corporate tax rate, basically you haven't seen anything play out within the market. So for people who are interested as these talks progress in terms of expressing a view from an entry point standpoint, that's actually pretty attractive. In terms of what it could mean um, from a personal standpoint and, and how you invest, I think putting it into context when we did have those tax hikes, and I think we have to go back to 1993 and 1987, and the impact of that on the overall market, and it looked like on average it was about five percentage points. So in that sense, kind of putting it into perspective as to what that impact could be, I think is helpful. And then in the larger rates environment, <clears throat> We don't see a lot of either trading around that or investing around that at this point in time. 
Uh, Kristen, thank you so much. Kristen Bitterly there, Sharp from Citigroup Private Bank. Right now, and I guess this is an important discussion. This is something that Lisa and I in our pre-show meeting said is really top of pile. Forget about the IMF. Forget about James Diamond. How do you travel with the young Hellions? Mercedes Carnathon is in charge of family psychiatry for the Abramowitz and Keene households <laughs> and joins us this morning from Chicago. You got work to do. Uh, you know, Mercedes, oh, let's cut to the chase here. And this is important. We make a joke about it, uh, ill-mannered brats that they are. But you say traveling <laughs> yeah. with children is risky. I don't understand that. Why is that risky in this pandemic? You know, it's really tough. I think we're all eager to get out. I mean, I've been home with these children now for, you know, 14 or 15 months. I'd like to go. Um, And, you know, whereas my husband and I are vaccinated and our older adult family members are now vaccinated, my children aren't. So if I take them with us, then I'm exposing them to risk of these new variants, which seem to really infect children. Then what do we do on that? I mean, of everything we've talked about today and, frankly, this week on the show, Mercedes, that is the single boldest statement I've heard. Are you saying we cannot open up this nation because of true medical risk to our children? Well, you know, 25, I think an estimate was that 25% of our population is children. We're all racing toward this herd immunity, and we're estimating that we need to get 75% of our population vaccinated. Well, 25% are not currently eligible for vaccination, and children do contract COVID, and children do spread COVID. You know, while they don't have as severe of outcomes as adults, they do get it. And so we're going to continue to see it circulate. I want the nation to open up. I want out of my basement. Uh, I want out, you know, I want to go somewhere warm, but there still remains a risk to me taking the children with us. All right. So let's talk about what works. I mean, can you stick a mask on them, bring them into the uh, plane and basically say, wash your hands a lot and you'll be fine? I mean, what do we actually know still at this point about how to prevent it in order to live your life to some degree as more people get vaccinated? You know, absolutely. You know, the the mitigation measures that have, have held us up this long, masking, distancing, um, you know, those, those measures are still in effect. And so it is fine. You know, you can make sure your children wear a mask, make sure they know not to lick the, uh, you know, back of the plane seat in front of them. Um, and you and can make the trip. Yeah, don't do that. Um, you can make the trip as safe as possible, but you have to be adherent to this. And, you, and, and, you know, if your state has travel quarantine rules when you go somewhere, where if vaccinated individuals don't have to quarantine, you may not send your children back to school or on play dates after they come back from a state on a quarantine list. So let's talk about some of the science behind this. First, I'd like to get your sense on how severe the disease and some of these variants could be for children. And also the idea of kids aged 12 to 15 getting vaccinated before the school year starts again. How likely is that given some what of the this, models What is this, a doctor's appointment? Yeah. I mean, come on, Lisa. She's our advisor, <laughs> our psychiatric advisor for the Keene and Abramowitz household. So there you go. Mercedes, help us. Yeah. You know, um, I think we do have to keep the risks in perspective. Children contract COVID. They do become ill from COVID. But by and large, the leading cause of hospitalization and death in children are unintentional injuries. So let's think about that. Certainly your child can contract COVID. The likelihood that they'll be hospitalized from a car accident, a bicycle accident, remains higher. 
So, you know, it is all in perspective, but, you know, right. you never know. You don't want your child <clears throat> to be that child. I do look forward to the progress that we're making in uh, vaccination of younger children. The 12 to 15-year-olds are soon to become eligible. You think about sports leagues and performance theater and the things that are really important to the mental health of children Mercedes, of that age, they I just, can return. Mercedes, I just want to know if they can do a day trip to Sephora. I mean, that's all uh, yeah. I want to know. You know, Mercedes, <laughs> I, I got, you know, we talked to all sorts of muckety mucks on this show. You get more mail than anyone. This Uh-oh. in from Western Indiana, baby Charles is not a hellion. Uh, we, we're sorry if we insulted uh, anybody in West Indiana. And also they go on to say baby Charles must see Turks and Caicos. Mercedes, cut oh. to the chase. Okay. I need to travel this weekend. Hey. It's on the Gulf Stream. I'm taking baby yeah. Charles to the Turks and Caicos. Is that a wise thing to do? Seriously. You know what? Um, everything is a calculated risk. And I would never uh, deign to say somebody absolutely shouldn't do something and it's a terrible idea. The likelihood of your child becoming severely ill is low, but it does happen. You know, if and just be aware, you know, you could end up getting quarantined down in Turks and Caicos and not be able to come back oh. if somebody tests positive oh, down there. Sounds so, brutal. Well, except it uh, is because then you get locked in your room. Oh, that's um, terrible. You, you mean by the pool? Yeah. They'll send <laughs> so, an email back. I'm like, Mercedes, uh, go away. You're giving them way too yeah. many. You're giving them way too many ideas here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Charles has a headache. <laughs> yeah, we I can't stuck. come you back. Tell your boss. I was, you know, doing my public health best, and I was. Yeah. I had to quarantine in Turks and Caicos. They're know, very good. The accounts I've read are not fun. Mercedes Carnathan. Go away with Northwestern <laughs> and seriously, their university professor of preventative medicine. She is literally best in class and talking about the social aspects, the hardcore medical data aspects of what this means for society. David Rubenstein joins the Carlisle Group and, of course, his acclaimed peer-to-peer conversations on Bloomberg, I believe, tonight at 9 p.m. And, David, thank you, thank you for so doing this interview because Wes Moore is one of the great screw-ups of all time. His father died at three years old. He had a really difficult childhood, finally ended up in military academy, and a switch went off at Johns Hopkins. What did Wes Moore do in that path? And when he finally got to Johns Hopkins, what was the switch that got him going? He decided to turn his life around and uh, became a Rhodes Scholar at Johns Hopkins, went to Oxford, got a degree at Oxford, and then decided to give his uh, time to the military. And he went to Afghanistan as a uh, officer there, served in several years in Afghanistan, came back and got involved with a number of other activities. But now for the last four years, been running Robin Hood. Yeah. And he will until the end of May. And then he was planning to run for governor of Maryland. I mean, this is absolutely extraordinary, folks. To all of you on radio and television, this is the kid that turned it around and made good of it. What has he done at Robin Hood, the foundation? Let's be clear, David. I believe Robin Hood every year gives all the money away. It's a true conduit for charity. Yes, the uh, financial community basically puts up all the money for the administrative costs. All the donations, 100% of them are actually go are given away every year. It's about four or five hundred million dollars a year, and uh, this is going to largely uh, <coughs> deal with anti- the poverty problems in New York City and, and the environment and the environment uh, um, environments around uh, New York City. 
Um, and it has been replicated in other parts of the country as well. And Robinhood has been the, the uh, I'd say, the signature type of uh, anti-poverty action that the financial community uh, can uh, claim a good deal, good deal of credit for, for helping to get started. Is Westmore electable? Uh, no African-American has been elected statewide in Maryland um, other than as lieutenant governor on, some, on a governor's ticket. So, you know, Maryland is a Democratic state, has a large black population. Obviously, he would appeal to more than, than blacks. But uh, it, he's a Democrat. And I, there are a lot of people seeking the nomination. So too early to say he's never run for office before. But he was certainly a strong, articulate candidate. I would no doubt mm-hmm. about that. James Diamond today, David Rubenstein. I'd love to see a David Rubenstein 66-page annual letter. That would be great, uh, David. Mr. Diamond out with a letter, and he talks about fortitude as being part of leadership. What is the fortitude you've observed from Westmore? Well, he's overcome some some, uh, real disadvantages in life. He was uh, handcuffed by police when he was 11 or 12, uh, sent to a military academy, uh, was, uh, you know, had some real challenges as a youth, but then turned it around at, at Johns Hopkins and went on to a uh, Rhodes Scholarship. And now at the age of 43, I think he has a pretty promising political career ahead of him if he wants to pursue that. And I think he will. David Rubenstein, on this day where Mr. Diamond writes his annual letter, there's been lots of discussion about Jamie Diamond as appointed or elected political official. Can CEOs like James Diamond become politicians in this modern America? It's tough because uh, now everything you've ever done over 20 years or so has looked at every business deal, every transaction. So it's more complicated to, to do that as an elected official. Maybe as an appointed official, it might be a little bit easier. What do you see, David, right now on travel? The other great thing we see, and Mr. Diamond was talking about this, the opening up of America, the international economy much delayed as well. What does Carlisle observe in the opening up of America as we end this pandemic? Let me just give you my own observations. My, My observations are that people want to go back and to their office, maybe not five days a week. People want to go back and travel, maybe not as much as before. I think vacation travel and leisure travel will come back ahead of business travel. Business travel will come back, but probably not at the pace that it once was, where you would fly around the world for a half-hour meeting. I think that probably can be done through Zoom or the equivalent. But I do think people have a pent-up desire to go back and meet Mm -hmm. with other people and see the rest of the world they haven't seen for the last year or so. What is the character of higher yields that you see? I mean, not so much, you know, the narrowness of internal rates of return on a transaction or a combination, but what do higher yields do to the mindset of CEOs and C-class officers? Well, higher yields, uh, you know, obviously make people a little bit nervous because it means that, uh, you know, inflation might be around the corner and we haven't had serious inflation for, for quite a while. People are worried about modest inflation relative to what we had in the 1970s. I do think the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape because of the stimulus we've had. With the enormous amount of stimulus we've had, it's difficult for the U.S. economy not to grow at 5 or 6% this year. And I suspect next year will be in pretty good shape as well. Who can predict two or three years down the road? We'll probably have some inflation, but I don't think it's going to be uh, inflation that's going to be anything close to what we've seen in the well, 70s. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And congratulations on a spirited and original interview with Westmore of Robin Hood, uh, the charity. Westmore, really a unique uh, person. Look for that tonight. Peer-to-peer conversations, 9 p.m. Uh, this evening. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. 
Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.